Hello, I'm Paul Burston and welcome to the Polari podcast. And I'm Sophia Blackwell. Hello, Paul. How are you this weekend? I'm very well, thank you. Good. So we've got two events to talk about and to recap on in this episode two of the Polari podcast. And first of all, we're going to be talking about the second event of this season, such as it's been at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. How was it to go back to the RVT? It was great. I mean, they've got to such great lengths at the RVT in terms of you know keeping the venue open during this very challenging time and sticking to all the guidelines being very observant and taking care of their customers. Um, so it's a place where you go and you feel very safe. It's also got, you know, I, I'm, I, I have a big soft spot for the RVT. I've been going there since the late 80s. It's one of the oldest surviving LGBT venues in London. There's so much history attached to it. So to sort of be there and feel that you're part of that incredible heritage um, feels very special. It does somehow. And you're right, they are taking exemplary care of their customers. It's just a real lesson in in how to do that sort of thing. But it was great fun. It was great fun to see Uli from from Gaze the Word. We had the little bookstall set up in the corner where I was doing the first part of the recording. And then I got to move around a bit. But we also had two very different authors um, on that that night, a bit more sort of on the the literary novel and uh, non-fiction spectrum. It was really nice to to see Diana Sahami again and to see Philip Henshaw, I think, for the first time for me. How did you decide to to pick those two for that second RBT event? Well, basically, um, both Diana and Philip were each booked to be headliners on separate occasions at South Bank this year. And all, the, all of those events obviously got cancelled um, due to COVID. So I thought, well, it'd be, it'd be a good idea to get them both on. I'd also introduce them because there was a party at Gaze the Word and okay. and uh, it was just quite a few people there and Diana arrived and I was talking to Philip and after she'd sort of gone through to get a drink, Philip said, is that Diana Sarami? And I said, yes. And he said, oh, would you introduce me? I've been dying to meet her for ages. So I introduced them that night and I thought, well, they'd be a good pairing. They're both quite um, similar in the sense they're both very erudite Um and they're both very, very witty. And I thought they'd make a really good pairing. So, um, and, 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 and so, and so I, I thought they did as well. I thought it was a really, really good um, choice in the end. I thought, I thought they sparked off each other really well. Um, they're coming from very different um, perspectives in the sense that Diana writes non-fiction and uh, mainly biographies, mainly of lesbian people from history um and philip is a novelist um although he also edits short story collections and anthologies and so they've sort of both brought different things to the table but there was there was they had enough in common that the conversation flowed quite well quite naturally it wasn't really it wasn't it wasn't a difficult um, event to to chair i mean it was it was just keeping you know it was they they they, they just flowed so it was great it was great fun I really enjoyed it <laughs> Uh, good evening, welcome to Polari at the RVT. My name is Paul Burston. I've been running Polari since 2007. Uh, for those who have not been before, Polari is a live literary showcase for LGBTQ plus writers. We also run a book prize, and we, every year we give two awards, which are also LGBTQ themed. 
Tonight we have two titans of LGBT literature for you. And to kick us off, I'd like to introduce Philip Henscher. He's the author of several novels, including King of the Badgers and The Northern Clemency, which was shortlisted for the 2008 Bookman Booker Prize. His books are often set against a backdrop of historical change. His latest novel is called The Small Revolution in Germany. He edited the Penguin Book of British Short Stories, Volume 1 and 2, and a new volume, The Golden Age of the British Short Story, is just published this month. Please welcome Philip Henscher. It's the first event where I have to uh, remind myself to uh, put my shoes on. Um, anyway, I'm going to talk a bit about um, uh, the new book, the, A Small Revolution in Germany. It came out so in February. Um, I'm uh, not a very um, certain person. I mean, I'm not very certain about um, about eternal truths, really. I'm always kind of thinking, oh, I don't know, maybe... Uh, a few years ago, um, a uh, magazine I knew ran a competition um, for a, uh, uh, a newspaper editorial to be written on the subject of um, whether Anne Widdicombe should be burnt at the stake. <laughs> the, uh, the, the winning entry was... Um, the winning entry, I seem to remember, was a, a very good version of uh, one of those Observer editorials going, oh, I don't know, one <laughs> And the winning entry finally concluded that uh, perhaps Anne Whittacombe should be gently singed. Um, I'm, I'm very much a sort of gently singed sort of person, really. Um, and as I get older, I say... I find myself saying more often about all sorts of things. Well, I don't know, it's a bit more complicated than that. And yeah. um, I, I used to be very, very decisive when I was, uh, when I was younger, when I was 17. And I knew exactly what ought to be done to put the world to rights. Um, and then as you, know, you get older, I think you stop being quite so decisive. I, I think it's not so much um, all the boring things like having a mortgage and a job and you know, the rest of it. It's more sort of getting to know more people. And um, when I was um, 17 and knew exactly what needed to be done, the, um, the only people that I really knew socially were people that were in my French group at school, members of the City of Sheffield Youth Orchestra, and a uh, queen called Alex, who introduced uh, Blusher for Men to the bus stops of uh, Sheffield. Um, and since then, I've met, I've met quite a lot of different people, and uh, I do go around saying... Well, it's a bit more complicated than that. But um, about five years ago, I was, um, I was back in Sheffield, and by chance, I met um, somebody that I knew at school, and um, he hadn't changed at all. He still believed exactly the same things that we all believed when we were 17. And it was kind of great, but I was kind of staring at him, just going, how, you know, what, what, what happened? What, what happened to you? Or really, what didn't happen to you, actually. Um, and that, that, sort of, um, that sort of set me off, really, on this book, which is about um, teenage revolutionaries and what happens to them as they, um, um, as they, they get older. Diana Suhami is a non-fiction writer and biographer of famous literary figures, including famous literary lesbians. She talks about her new book, 
No Modernism Without Lesbians, which was released earlier this year, including notable figures such as Gertrude Stein, Sylvia Beach, Briar, the novelist, Natalie Barney, and various other characters who we loved being introduced to on the night. And here she is. Thank you, Paul, for inviting me, and thank you all for being real people, <laughs> real events, and real world. This is what the journalist Janet Slanner wrote in 1926. The world has always had lovers, and yet for thousands of years, the concentrated aim of society has been to cut down on kissing. With that same amount of energy, society could have stopped war, established liberty, given everybody a free education, free bathtubs, free music, free pianos, and changed the human mind to boot. Janet Lano crops up in my book, No Modernism Without Lesbians. It's about creative lesbians who, in the decades before the Second World War, fled the repressions and expectations of their hometowns like Washington and London, and formed a like-minded community in Paris. They lived, wrote, published freely, and were at the vanguard of modernism that shifts from 19th century orthodoxies into 20th century ways of seeing and saying. There'd been no community like it since the ancient Greek poet Sappho on the island of Lesbos. Many of them learned Greek to read Sappho's verses, and they wrote their own poems in harmony. I started writing biographies of lesbians 35 years ago. I've written lots of them, and this is the last. This is the last. <laughs> it's the first time a mainstream publisher has wanted the word lesbian. Historically, a mother didn't want to hear it, and publishers didn't want to use it. So for me, it's a breakthrough to have lesbian in the title, on the jacket, on the spine, in the running. <laughs> It bleaches the word residual shame to use it as an inclusive common noun and as a positive light to shine on the achievements of the women I write about. I loved Philip's reading and Diana's sort of presentation of uh, modernist lesbians throughout history or just these amazing sort of rebel women. She had a PowerPoint presentation, she which did. is a quite something. I can't wait for her to get back on the circuit with that because she's going to wow them. But for me, I think the real highlight was the chat that you three had in part two, um, which we're going to be hearing a bit of as as part of the show, um, because it was hilarious. And as you say, you three did just spark off each other. You seem to be having a really good time during that uh, part of the evening, uh, were you? I was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's, there's always that part of, a, of an evening where you know, it was the second half of the show. The first half, my job was simply to introduce them and then they, they did their thing. But they were both so wonderful and I knew by the interval that it was it was already a successful night. So going back on stage with them both afterwards was almost like going on for a curtain call, it felt like, you know, because it, like, it felt like the show was already... It already, it already hit its mark. So for me, it was it was a very easy ride. Um, and the second half of the of the evening was... Was just a delight, really. Just, just, just keeping the conversation going, picking up, picking up on some of the themes and ideas that they'd each discussed during their presentations. It was a very easy job on, on my part. Can you enjoy the first half? Yeah. So we like to hear. Please join me in welcoming back. 
Philip Henscher and Diane Swami. What I really like about the word lesbian is that it's um, it's kind of historical and, and cultural. It's kind of where where Sappho came from. That's right. A lot of words for all the words for for male equivalent they're kind of medical, like homosexual or um, or kind of slang or, or whatever. I, I had one man attempt to revive the word sodomite. <laughs> I wear that on t-shirts. <laughs> far more so than gay men because of legal description and so on, but all sorts of social reasons being women. Lesbians have been far more written out of history and erased from the story than, than men have. Um, have you felt that your work sort of archiving and restoring and telling these stories is, is of itself very political, because it seems to me it's very political. I feel it's very totally political. I find myself, you know, looking to see how many women are included in, in this. I'm looking at the number of your books or, or any collection of things. How many women are there, you know? Isn't it interesting? I was reading Patricia Duncan, you know? Yes. And she says, what should, what should we do with women, women who, are, who, are, who are political? What do we do about this whole thing that, it's, it, that literature is sort of being appropriated by men? And she says, read it. She, she, she compares it to sort of having a rather delicious fish. That you, you fill it, it and, you, and you enjoy the flesh and you bin the bones. And I think the whole binning the bones of patriarchy and of our history is, is yes, what I would like to do. Um, you both been published for quite some time now. Steady. Well, I am. We're all getting on a bit, aren't we? Let's be honest. Well, I'm, I'm the oldest person in the universe. <laughs> Are you really 107? Is that true? No, I'm 18. 18? Everybody, I I, I told even the bus stop. <laughs> <laughs> What's the thing? It's remarkable, isn't it? Yes, it's I mean, I've, I've woken up in the morning so often now. <laughs> <laughs> what I was going to ask was, having having been part of the sort of LGBTQ blah blah literary scene for so many decades. Do you think that it has changed? I mean, in terms of, just as the publishing world changed? Because there's been a lot of discussion in the last year in particular about diversity in publishing, and even the biggest, the big publishing houses are talking a lot about diversity, making all the right noises, but do you think that this is, that there really has been a change? Or do you think that's just sort of PR? I don't, I don't know how to trust change, and I, I think, I mean... One of the things about now is how, how much it, we have too much information, how how quick information changes, and how and you know I, I, I lost my window of publication with this book because it was brought out on the second of April. And if you don't grab your little slot, everything has moved on to something else. Ideas don't have time to settle. Do you think? Don't you think? You feel that's true? Um, yeah, things moved on so quickly that it's hard to say how quick, whether tolerance is... I mean, I think it's been... It really, it really ha- is there. We, and gosh, the, 
so many things have got worse, but... I mean, I grew up without any vocabulary at all. None. I think there is a sort of way in which... I mean, sometimes on sometimes on social media, I think, do you know what? People were, people were telling me you know, 30 years ago that they weren't interested in what I had to say because, you know, gay men weren't interesting. And now there's a, there are completely new ways of telling people that um, uh, they're not interested in what they had to say. Because, you know, men are interested in what, yes. uh, you know, cis gay men have to say about everything. You know. And I just say, well, it's fine. I mean, what it's like actually to have a job, I can't really remember. Certainly, you know, I left a job in the last decade because I couldn't stand the, um, the kind of relentless homophobia in the university department, not the one I work in now very happily. But, uh, you know, certainly things like, um, you, know, there were, you know, I think that everybody would probably recognise this that um, you know, a, somebody who was the equality equality representative in the, the department saying to me after I got married, you know, we talk about your husband, does that make you the wife in the relationship? Oh my god. This is the year 2010, you know. I mean, at a university. At a university. <laughs> I don't think I think that, Pete, that there is a there is a way in which, you know, the gay and lesbian society that you know, we grew up, grew up in, it's, been, it's become much more open, which is you know, fantastic. I can't really imagine somebody in their 20s now being seriously afraid to come out with you big seat for it. I can remember going into a Waterstones about, I don't know, three, four years ago. And so it's not that I ever go to that department because I don't have children, but go to the YA department and seeing in the YA section all these sort of books that were in the kind of top 20 books. And about half of them had LGBT protagonists and themes. And I just thought, that's really encouraging because that, that, that those are the readers of tomorrow. These, these are the adult readers of tomorrow. And I kind of had this, you know, na- naive, perhaps, um, belief that, well... Publishing is going to change radically now because publishing is very commercially driven, so it's all about you know responding to the market, which is rubbing up all those books by influencers and celebrity memoirs like you know, for one thing like being on a television show or whatever. Um, I thought, well, maybe that's going to trickle down. We're going to see more and more real, authentic LGBT stories being told because they've seen that there's a market among the youth. I think that that is true, but it's it's sort of quite interesting that. To be accepted, you have to have somebody accepting you. Right. <laughs> you know? right. So it, ha- your, your, it has to be your family accepting you, and they have to make the adjustment. Right. In much the same way as this, usually, or for most of us, a journey or, a, or a, something to overcome or to come to terms with realisation. So the people who are accepting you have to make a journey as well. And I think there is that journey being made by... Uh, other people in the rest of society, not just not just us. You know, that parents are unsurprised or even pleased. You know, the the, the doors are open. That that organisations will say will talk about their equality. And all these things are what makes the society change towards a top towards tolerance. That's why in this book I wanted to I wanted to emphasise achievement, achievement. 
As usual, at the end of the event, I went into the crowd as much as I could in a socially distanced manner to ask the crowd what they thought and the responses as ever were uniformly positive, as well as making a new friend in Alina, who lets us know what she thought of the night here. It was wonderful to catch up with John, who writes the Dolores DeLago blog, who talks so wonderfully about various Polari events that he's attended. It was great to see John. And also I got to speak to Keris Evans, who I'd interviewed earlier in the year but had not actually met until that fantastic night. So, Keris, how are you enjoying tonight? Oh, it's been absolutely fabulous. It's been wonderful, first of all, to get out of the house, but it's, it's fantastic to see so many great authors and look, particularly like learning from LGBT history as well. So it's so important to see it and also support the arts and what we really need to keep doing at this moment in time. So, well, what's your name? My name is Alina. Alina, hi. Did you enjoy tonight's show? Yeah, it's so great, actually. So, were there any parts of tonight that you particularly enjoyed? I enjoyed the sincerity, the humour, the sarcastic um, enjoyment of themselves when they're uh, saying things, and it's so great, the emotions, and how the... People from the scene, they're enjoying the feeling from the people out of the scene. And this feeling between the real people is so great. Like, it's so rare now. And, yeah, it's comfortable. So, John, did you enjoy tonight's show? It's absolutely fabulous. <laughs> I love Polari. I always have loved Polari. I've been going for 10 years more and it is so good to have it it is so so good to have it back. perfect thank you <laughs> i've missed you too so recently uh, you also did an online live event as well didn't you can you tell us a little bit about that before we hear some highlights from it well we did a live um online digital event um and it was shortly before we announced the winners of this year's Polari Prize Awards. So at the time, we didn't know who those winners were, um, but we had two shortlisted 
authors. Um, one was Alison Child, um, whose book Tell Me I'm Forgiven was on the shortlist for the Polari First Book Prize. And she was dialing in from Lesbos, where she's been spending the summer and the autumn. Um, the other was Juno Roche, who was shortlisted for the Polari Prize for non-debuts for her second book, Trans Power. She was dialing in from northern Spain, so it was we were very international. We were, we, 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 were, we were making a virtue of the of, of the fact that it was a digital event by having people so far removed from the room that they were actually in different countries. And then we also had S.J. Watson, um, who wrote Before I Go to Sleep, uh, international bestseller, movie, etc. And he was talking about his latest psychological thriller, which is called Final Cut. And he was dialing in from boring old UK. So he was he was the fellow British-based uh, contributor on the panel. Last month, we held the first ever Polari Live online on Zoom. Our authors were tuning in from far and wide. We kicked off in Lesbos with Alison Child, who was shortlisted for this year's Polari First Book Prize for her book, Tell Me I'm Forgiven. So I'm going to read um, from the book now a short extract that begins almost to the day a hundred years ago. Writing in the New Statesman on the 16th of October, 1920, Virginia Woolf had urged women wanting professional lives to make a dash for it and disregard a species of torture more exquisitely painful, I believe, than any that man can imagine. Gwen and Nora sang a topical song on the same theme. We don't want to get married. We're having too much fun. We don't want to be bothered with any certain one. Behind a husband's love may lurk, but I'd much sooner look for work. They were secretly creating for themselves an admirable contemporary alternative to marriage, which could flourish alongside their growing careers as variety artists. They had made a dash for it, and now the task was to sustain their lifestyle with the same energy they had used to create it. They had similar tastes in home decorations, sharing a fondness for antiques. The Pall Mall and Globe reporter said, these days the bachelor girl is just as keen on her house and her furniture as the matron. And Gwen Farrer and her friend, Nora Blaney, are keener than most. When you go and see them at their charming house in Kings Road, Chelsea, you usually find just picked up something for its adornment. They acquired a puppy called Flea, a white-haired terrier. When journalist Margaret Shute visited what she described as the delightful house where Nora Blaney lives with Gwen Farrer, or vice versa, or both, she was introduced to Flea in the music room. Now, Gwen had a particularly penetrating deep voice. Isn't he divine? He hears all our songs, and if he likes them, that's good enough. I asked Alison what first drew her to Gwen and Nora. I found them on uh, a, a silent clip that someone had posted on YouTube and they were frolicking about, they weren't singing, they were 
I think doing a promo for the 1924 show they were in at the Duke of York's theatre called the Punch Bowl, but they were on a golf course and they were flirting outrageously with each other and touching each other's faces and smiling and talking, but it was silent footage, so, so you can't hear what they're saying. But they were just clowning about and they seemed so obviously uh, in love. And I was immediately intrigued and set up about finding everything I could about them. And what's next for you, Ali? Um, I'd love it to be a telly. I mean, it, 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 there are so many episodes in the book that it would lend itself to um, serialisation. Then it was over to northern Spain to talk to Juno Roche. Juno was shortlisted for this year's Polari Prize for her book, Transpower. Help. No, really, help. I know that opening this book with a cry for help might seem, it does seem, a little, a lot, needy. But I'm having a huge crisis in confidence, as I don't feel like a woman or a man anymore. Nor do I feel non-binary, as it includes the word binary. Nor do I feel fluid, as it still posits that there are two binary poles for me to become fluid between. I just feel trans. And finally, I feel beautifully cut adrift from the endless layers of performativity that have weighed me down my whole life. Layers of performativity. I'm sure they have blocked any dysphoria from leaving me and allowed it instead to remain deep inside, turning to self-stigma and ultimately internalised transphobia. We do that. How could we not do that when the world so throws so much transphobic shade our way? Constantly telling us that we are not good enough to be considered as real. How could we not internalise that in our endless quest to become perfect binary specimens for them? Those layers of performance were me trying to please everyone else in the world but me. I've disconnected from those layers now because my label is simply trans. I never imagined I'd be a writer and I never really set out to write anything and it just happened. And I got to the end of the first book, which was called Queer Sex, and realised that as a trans person, I was still trying to be everybody else's kind of idea of what a trans person should be or everyone's fantasy. And, and actually today I was reading um, Argonauts by Maggie Nelson and I came across this brilliant line, which was, she was talking about her partner and, and her partner had said about something they were doing. I was interested in the reality of his fantasy. And I kind of felt like that. That's why I wrote this one because when I had surgery, my surgeon said to me on the way down to surgery, don't worry, I'm going to make you look as real as possible. <laughs> and I thought, stop, stop, this, stop the thing. You know, if I'm just going to look real, it means I'm not going to be real. So I suppose... This book is all about me trying to find my, the, my kind of core, my kind of authenticity. Last but not least, we heard from S.J. Watson, author of the best-selling Before I Go to Sleep, who read from his new novel, Final Cut. So this is the very opening of the book. She runs across the moor as hard and as fast as she can. The sliver of an old moon hangs above her and somewhere far behind, the village lights shine in an anemic yellow. But she keeps her eyes fixed forward. She sees nothing but the road ahead and hears only the wheeze of her dry breath and the cawing of the gulls as they swoop and dive. There are no sounds of pursuit, no shouting, no howling of dogs. She is safe, she thinks. She can calm down, stop running and walk. It's over. But still she runs. 
She pushes herself harder. Her limbs wheel, momentum carries her until she's on the edge of tumbling like a marionette. Wires snipped, head over heels. A car flashes past on the horizon and then it happens. Her body goes numb as if she's fallen into cotton wool. Her arms and legs circle in front of her, but they look alien. They're moving independently. She has no control. It's like looking through the wrong end of a telescope. She tries to draw breath, to to blink herself back to reality, but it's too late. Her body has rebelled. When she tries to stop running, she finds she can't. Her foot hits something then. It registers only as an abstract pain, dull, like the dentist's drill after the needle. But still she trips in slow motion as if falling through sludge. Her hands fly forward and she hits the cold ground, squeezing the breath from her lungs like air from a paper bag. She lies still. She could rest, she thinks, forever if need be. She sees herself as if from a distance, as if she's in a documentary. She's lying there in the dark, her eyes open, her lips blue. They'll find her in the morning, frozen. It wouldn't be so bad. But no, she won't die here, not like this. Energy rushes in, a shot of adrenaline, and she gets clumsily to her feet. She walks, putting one foot carefully in front of the other, over and over until finally she reaches the junction. Her eyes dart. She shakes, though she doesn't feel fear. She doesn't feel anything. She puts her rucksack at her feet, then holds out her hand, thumbs up. It's early morning and the road isn't busy. Cars pass infrequently, but eventually one stops. The driver winds down the window. It's a man, of course, but beggars can't be choosers. Where to, love, she says. He says. But she doesn't know how to answer him. She hasn't thought that far ahead. She imagines Bluff House. It's as if it's right in front of her, silhouetted against the pale sky, huge and looming with a solitary light shining in an upstairs room. She can never go back. Love? She shakes her head. She knows where she wants to end up, but not how to get there. And she has to choose somewhere before he drives off. Anywhere, she says, before opening the door and climbing in. Anywhere. Just away. Um, I'd like to start by talking a little bit about um, before I go to sleep. Just yeah. some context. I mean, your first book, and it was such a huge, enormous success. I mean, it was that and Gone Girl were the two books that really put sort of psych thrillers in, into everyone's faces. Um, that must have been an amazing experience to go through. But is it also quite daunting afterwards when you come to, to, to do the next project because there's an expectation, or, or do you not do you just push that aside and not think about that kind of stuff. <laughs> I wish I could push it aside. No, yeah, I mean, it's very true. It's very daunting. I, I wasn't kind of consciously daunt, daunted by the whole thing, I don't think. But, but actually, yeah, in retrospect, it was very, very... But I mean, you know, I have to remind myself it's a luxury problem to have. Following, following up a huge debut bestseller is, a, is, you know, as problems go, that's quite a good one to have to deal, deal with. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a different experience, really. Um, just because I've always thought with, with, with novels... You know, you have to kind of write the first draft as if no one's ever going to read it to an extent. Um, yeah. And obviously when you're writing a debut, that's probably going to be true, or at least you can tell yourself it's true. You know, the chances of it, of it, of it you know, are fairly small. So that was relatively easy. But then with this, when I sat down to write the second one, you know, I had ed- editors and reviewers and agents and, and, and more importantly, readers around the world who were going to be interested. So suddenly every sort of word seemed to matter more or you know carry, have to carry more weight and, it, and that became a that became a bit of a yeah a bit of a problem so yeah the, the process re- for me re- was really trying to get back to that place where I where I kind of did push that aside and learned to kind of ignore it um, at least until the second draft yeah so it was quite daunting 
there is there is that phenomenon, you know, difficult second album syndrome as well, isn't there? Which I think mm-hmm. I think many authors have this. I was talking to this with some authors the other day about difficult second novel syndrome, regardless of where your career is. There's always an expectation mm-hmm. of the second novel. It's just it's just different because you've 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 already got a book out there in the world. So there's yeah, absolutely, isn't there? Mm. And you know, especially given the success of the, the success of Poor Sleep, it, it, it felt a little bit like I, I, I was someone who kind of wandered onto a golf course. I don't play golf, by the way, but <laughs> probably a terrible analogy. But like I'd wandered onto a golf course and, and smacked the ball with with the stick, um, whatever they call it, and uh, and and got a hole in one, you know. And he said, scored a goal then, but that really would be mixing metaphors, wouldn't it? But, you know, and, and got a hole in one, and then everyone was like, okay, go out and do it again. And I was like, I don't, but I don't know what I was doing the first time, you know. Um, so it was, a, it was a strange, strange thing, yeah. But Without giving too much away, um, before I go to sleep has an, has an element of amnesia in it, or a woman who can't mm. make memories. And that, that's become quite a trope now in psychological thrillers, this idea that yeah. someone can't remember something. But it's really difficult to avoid it because it's actually, you know, you're talking about psychological thrillers, so there are so many ways you can go in terms of um, navigating it. How did you navigate that theme? Because there's, there's a slight element of that in this book, isn't there? Isn't yeah, there? yeah, there is. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know why I keep, I keep being obsessed or being, keep returning to that sort of topic of identity and memory. But it does fascinate me because, you know... Um, I think especially as someone, I don't know, I was thinking this the other day, but kind of, I think maybe growing up gay had something to do with that. Because I do sort of feel like my life is kind of split into separate stages almost of kind of before I came out, then after I came out. And then there was a period where where I was out, but not really confident. And I don't know, but then, but then, but then probably everybody feels like that to an extent. I mean, I think, you know, you you don't get to my age without feeling that you've had different stages in your life. Um, Getting deep now but anyway um yeah i think the amnesia thing uh i i just found it very sort of compelling i mean again without sort of saying too much but to me this is a book about somebody who it's about the ways in which the brain will protect itself will protect the self from trauma i suppose so it's looking at a tra- traumatic experiences but the, but the mechanisms um that the brain will will kind of uh un- will kind of it put into place in order to kind of make sure that that's not too devastating, or can put into place to make sure that's not too devastating. So it's kind of um, complex PTSD in the book, really. And uh, yeah, and, and yeah, which, which became fascinating to me for various reasons. But yeah, so it's an interesting one. I, I do think there's something quite queer about that, because I do think that the vast majority of queer people, LGBTQ plus people, have experienced some level of trauma because mm. the world is not designed for us. And so we, um, and we're not raised by our own kind on the whole. Many mm. of us aren't. So we do go through a, through a period of, of feeling strangers to ourselves and to those closest to us. We, we do go through a sort of feeling of alienation. And mm. I think that there's a certain trauma that comes from that. And I think it's one of the things that um, as a gay man, I'm certainly very conscious of. And I think it's good that as a community, gay men are talking about this more now because there used to be this idea that you were in the closet you came out mm-hmm. and everything was happy ever after which of course is nonsense because you can't live in the closet for however many years and then not be repercussions because there's damage caused by living in the closet and yeah it's, it's, and, and sorting that stuff out afterwards you know I, so I, I can see why these themes have a particular um draw to you i think that i think that makes a complete sense to me mm. 
person. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think in, in I mean it's quite strange that I haven't really written a queer get character. Um, and I, I have actually, but but uh, they were fairly minor in the second book. Um, it's almost like I'm trying to explore these themes without directly looking at it. Um, Coming at it sideways. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's not a kind of conscious thing. It's kind of strange. Yeah. Um, I feel like I could say that here. <laughs> In this, in this, in this group. I don't I don't know why it is that I I, I seem determined to come at, come at it but from an oblique angle or don't want to sort of face it head on maybe I've got some healing to do still before I can really say anything intelligent about about my own experience for information on the next Polari live online please visit our website polarisalon.com or follow us on twitter at Polari salon so what else are you looking forward to in December well we've we were waiting to find out what would happen, but we've now had it confirmed that we are having ha- our delayed 13th birthday celebration, which was meant to happen in November, but obviously didn't because we've been under a, another lockdown. Um, but on the 16th of December, we'll be doing Polari in Heaven, which will be our third event at Heaven. And it will be a mixture of a delayed 13th birthday party and an early Christmas celebration. And we've got lots of surprises lined up, as well as the amazing lineup of performers. We have poet PJ Samuels. We have um, performer Alexis Gregory. We have um, author and comedian VG Lee, as you've never seen her before and will never, ever see her again. And we have uh, Ian, um, Ian Elmsley, formerly of Katrina and the Boy, um, author of A Marvellous Party and a wonderful musician, singer-songwriter, who's going to be treating us to songs from the David Bowie songbook. So there'll be a bit of music, a bit of festive spirit and some birthday celebrations. We've also got some surprise um, guest video messages for our birthday, which we'll be screening on stage during the during the event as well from some quite important people so it'll be a great night i mean he- heaven's another venue where they've gone to huge lengths to um make their venue covid safe i mean they've completely re redeveloped the whole main area of heaven which used to be the dance floor where we used to you know when we had the previous play events in heaven they would literally just bring out rows of chairs and a few tables at the front onto an existing dance floor, which were then cleared at the end. I mean, since since the beginning of this year, or since COVID began, um, the, that, that whole area has been converted into one giant bar, and it's all in, in little booths with perspex dividers. So it's actually very, very safe. Um, it's also, also with table service and all those usual things that people are doing nowadays. Um, it's also, from my point of view, it's actually quite a good thing because we, there are actually more seats now than there were when we did the pre- the previous Polaris in Heaven. So there's potentially a bigger audience if people you know, if people all come. So tickets only went on sale yesterday, and um, we've sold nearly a quarter of them already. So I'm really happy. I think I think I think it's going to be a a busy night. 
I'm sure it is. And I speak for many of my friends and uh, fellow members of the Polari family when I say that I cannot wait to be there and I'll be recording that as well. It'll be great fun, I promise you.